Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I'm not here to bring you a sermon. Uh, Pastor Andre is uh, speaking after I say a few words. Uh, I just want to honor a good man this morning. Uh, some of us uh, might have heard that Pastor John Lim uh, passed on last Sunday. Who is John Lim? John Lim uh, was one of my co-workers when I was pastoring uh, in the early years in this church. Uh, John uh, was a wonderful husband, an amazing dad. He would drive the kids to school and you know, uh, just be there for them when they were growing up. Uh, and he's a, and to some of us you know, who might remember him, he's Uncle John. Uh, and to me, he was an amazing co-worker. I just want to say a few words about John this morning and then um, you know, I'll say a prayer for the family. So, John Lim walked into our church in the early days at 50 Macpherson. Uh, it was still a very small uh, church and he walked in one Sunday and in our typical fashion, we said hi and then and I'll drop him a text and I say, let's catch up during the week. Uh, and so we did and John said, hey, come, I'll take you to my favorite uh, restaurant. So I said, okay, where should I meet you? And he brought, and he brought me to Subway at Courts, at, at uh, Courts Tampines, like the, the mega store. I said, okay, this is your favorite restaurant. And he would tell me that uh, he'll come here and read. Uh, he will meet people here. Well, he's semi-retired, you see. In fact, uh, his last job was a, uh, was a building manager. And he has always been in building and construction. And before he came to our, to our church, he uh, actually finished his Bible school and he was just seeking God about what's next. And so I asked him, what, what has God put on your heart? And he says, the next season of my life, I would love to serve God full time. And uh, me being me in, in a very random way, I say, come and join us. Lah. And also he did and he came on staff. And some of us might remember it was around that time that you know, our church experienced one of the most amazing miracles. Basically, we were renting uh, the top floor of 50 Macpherson and the building was bought over and the new landlord uh, was paying for our rent. And, and I was bold enough to ask for one more floor and so we had two floors and the landlord was paying for both floors so he was paying himself you know, for our rent uh, but we've got no experience managing uh, a space and of course we have to renovate level uh, I think it was level 6 so John came at the right time with his experience uh, in managing a building and construction he led that the entire project and as we went along, I realized you know, John has a passion for a particular people's group. And, you know, and I asked, so what, oh, if you can live the rest of your, of your, your life serving a cause, what would that be? And he said he would want to reach out to what he calls the 11th hour worker. So who are the 11th hour workers? Are the older people, you know, whom society has oftentimes neglected. And, uh, 
and he would quote from the par- uh, from the parable of the eleventh uh, of the last hour worker, right? He would say these people receive the, re- receive the same reward, and these people uh, would be effective in the ministry. And so these are the older people, and specifically he wants to minister to those who are Hokkien speaking. So it's very very niche. And so I said, what's stopping you? And he says, there's no opportunity. So I said, let's start here, lah, right? So it, again, in my typical fashion, you know, I said, let's pioneer this work. And so he did. So he pioneered uh, a Hokkien fellowship uh, that grew from just one person who one of our members brought. His name was Uncle James. He has passed on. Uncle James you know, was help, helping us maintain the, the place. And he was living at 50 McPherson uh, for a season. So with Uncle James and uh, John Lim and the family, they pioneered uh, a Hokkien ministry that actually grew to over 100 people. And so, yeah, so that, that, that was John. I remember him for his positivity, you know. He loved Subway and just how bubbly he is, you know, to the people around him, his love for the uh, family, his passion for uh, people, you know, and he was partnering with different ministries to uh, reach out to St. John's home. That was like a predecessor to Love Our City project. So, so the staff with me then would go and we would serve every lunchtime, we'll serve food, we'll prepare games, we'll sing to these older folks at St. John's uh, home. And beyond that, and I, I think he also led a few of our parents to Christ especially mine, right? So my parents weren't believers then and when John uh, was part of our church, John was very intentional in connecting with my dad, with my mom. You know, uh, he went to my place and uh, did house cleansing. My parents who weren't receiving, uh, weren't Christians then. My mom was a brand new believer but my dad wasn't and so they were doing cleansing and it was then that uh, I know my dad for the first time when my younger brother was praying for my dad, my dad just broke down and cried and uh, they just destroyed the idols you know uh, uh, that they were uh, that they were worshipping for a long time and so basically that was where my father came to Christ and you know he was being discipled in the uh, uh, in the early days by John uh, not just my parents but I f- believe a few of our parents also have received amazing ministry from John last but not least uh, John had, had an amazing passion for missions you know, I, I remember he would say, I, I would love to, to, to take a team uh, to minister to the Hokkien-speaking Chinese in the Riau Islands. It's very niche. Uh, so you, you mean there are Chinese there? Yeah, and they're Hokkien-speaking? Yes. And so he would lead teams there to the Riau Islands and he would minister. I remember my parents went with him uh, once to these islands and uh, that was when they first learned how to minister. And then he would lead teams to uh, different parts of China. And so that was John Lim. Unfortunately, uh, eight years ago, you know, after one, one of our meals, he went home and uh, he had a stroke. And uh, you know, he was recovering from the stroke, but uh, a few, I think a month ago, th- uh, things turned, you know, he had some breathing problem in and out of um, the hospital. And then last Sunday, he passed. So, uh, wonderful man amazing father and we just want to stand uh, with Eileen, his wife Isabel his daughter who's part of our church some of you uh, know her well and uh, Joshua you know who was one of the early uh, Sunday school kids that has grown into a fine looking young man so uh, just want to say John's a great man amen so can we just you know uh, Take a few moments to observe 
perhaps you know, a moment of silence in honor of an amazing man, a wonderful pastor who has made a difference in my life with my parents coming to faith, his faithful service, but in many of our lives. Father, this morning we just want to say that our loss is heaven's gain. And Lord, indeed, great is His reward in heaven. Lord, what it says that Lord, those who are greatest amongst us is a servant of all. And Father, we believe that verse aptly describes your son, John Lim, who have served cheerfully, willingly, sacrificially, Practically, God, roll up his sleeves, God, to go the extra mile for so many people. Lord, greatness is not defined by the size of our ministry or by our popularity, but greatness is defined by the depth of our service because of our love for you and because of our compassion for people. And we saw this, God, in Uncle John. And this morning we stand with Eileen, with Isabel, with Joshua, and we pray for them, God that they will be comforted by the Holy Spirit, that God, they will be encouraged, Lord, by the husband's life and by the father's life. And God, that they will take the baton and continue his legacy. And Father, we pray, God, whether we know him or we don't know him, God, that you will remind us, Lord, of Lord, the need, God, Lord to, Lord, to live our lives in a way, God, that's well-pleasing and worthy of our calling. And again, Father, we saw this in John. So we thank you for his life. We pray, God, that, Lord, in heaven, Lord, that he'll receive his due reward, Father, a life well-lived, fruit that will remain, Lord. For me and my parents' life, the faith that they have today, I'm grateful. We love you. We honor you. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Let's give John a big hand. Yes, come on. John, John Lin. Amen, amen. All right, I'll hand the time to Pastor Andre, who will bring us God's word this morning. Come on, give a hand for Pastor Andre. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Thank you, rousing, uh, rousing, uh, very enthusiastic. Uh, good to have you all back. Um, also good to um, have all of you back uh, in church. You know, uh, many of you know that this is just uh, one of uh, four. You know, I know we are not big fans of the word, uh, and we're sorry. We'll find another word for it. But clusters that will be rotating through uh, the church. You know, and so uh, if you're all part of a cluster, you will attend church once a month. Uh, and this is all temporary until we are able to increase our service capacity until measures uh, change. And so welcome back to church, folks. And as always, uh, all of y'all tuning at home, hi, welcome to church. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, you know, thanks, PD, for leading us in that time. Um, 
you know, indeed, and I want to echo uh, PD's words, you know, John, Uncle John, really, you know, is, is, is an amazing man. Uh, he uh, also took me to uh, one of his favorite places to eat. He took me to Chinese swimming club to, to eat. And so uh, maybe he liked me more than you, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I remember uh, my early years uh, on staff, you know, uh, Uncle John would take me out for meals and just, uh, you know, really inspire me a vision for people and ministry. And so... Uh, dearly missed, but uh, indeed, heaven's gain, yeah. heaven's gain. All right, uh, you know, today I, I have a word that, you know, I really, really feel unqualified to talk about, if I can be honest with you. You know, I've been, you know, in, in light of uh, recent events, been thinking about this idea of spiritual legacy and living, what it means to leave an inheritance for our children and for the generations to come, you know. We've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, as, as a home, we've been talking about, like, you know, what, what kind of like financial status we want to come into or like what, what's, you know, stuff we want to leave for our kids, you know, and this is just part and parcel of uh, growing up. Uh, and we've also been talking about this idea of living a spiritual inheritance. And I don't know whether this has been a subject in your family as well, you know, that, that beyond just the stuff we can leave for our children, that there is actually the possibility of leaving godly deposits in the lives of our children and seeing them flourish for uh, the years to come. Uh, not just in wealth, not just in accolades, not just in opportunities, but to flourish spiritually as well. And so uh, I hope to really impress in all of your hearts today uh, a vision for leaving a spiritual legacy, a vision for leaving a spiritual inheritance for your kids. I know this is just like, Andre is 10 years too young, too young to talk about stuff like that. But, you know, my, my, my real desire really, you know, is like for any of you who are single, and I know there are many among us that are single or are dating or are married without kids, you know, my heart is for all of us as a community to have that as a compelling vision for our families. And, and I wonder what would be possible if an entire community of people live that way, live that way, you know, with a vision for families that go beyond what they can do in life, but what they can do for God. And I think that's extremely powerful. And so um, if you indulge me, this is today's word. But uh, before that, you know, always funny stories. You like Kip and Andre tell funny stories. Um, let, me share, let me share a story. Um, you know, I am a new dad. Many of you know. Uh, little Seiji is five months already. Flipping like, well, not flipping. That, that's not a good way to put it. Turning <laughs> around uh, like nobody's business. Uh, so she's new skill, uh, can smile and all that. Uh, so really, really enjoying our time with her. Uh, I remember... Um, the day we uh, took her back from the hospital. Now, I don't know whether this has been your common, our common experience or your experience when you uh, brought your baby home from the hospital, but they tell you almost nothing. You know, I, I remember, you know, we were going to be discharged and they were like, okay, just watch out for the first poop. It's going to be really black. Uh, take care of the umbilical cord. Here's some stuff for it. Here's some free gifts. Uh, okay, bye-bye. And I was like, wow, you know, I get like way more instructions with a MacBook than you know, <laughs> with this. And this is a life, you know. I was like, wow, no instruction manual, no nothing. You know, just, okay, take care of the poop and the umbilical cord and off you go. And, and so, of course, we were very frantic and anxious as parents. And now I remember in the hospital, uh, whenever I tried to unswaddle her, I would see her shivering in the hospital. And so I just had it in my mind that, wow, this baby uh, really, really scared of the cold. Then I was like, wow, save a lot of money. Don't have to turn on aircon and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember we brought her home uh, that day, you know, and I brought her to a cot. And I put her in a cot, 
And then I decided, you know what, the best temperature is room temperature. And so I had no fan, no AC on, and just left her in the cot, and then she fell asleep. Uh, and then, you know, at night when we bathed her, um, we noticed that her entire body was covered in red patches all over her body, just red patches that looked very angry. Uh, and then, of course, we panicked. This is the first time we, we saw something like that. So we texted a few people, and then uh, everyone was like, oh, it's heat rash. It's heat rash. And so we got some of, like, the, how can you all like that? Da, da, da. And, you know, uh, I made, like, the, you know, the grave mistake of Googling. Uh. All right. So I Googled, like, baby, heat rash, temperature, hot, father failure, and leave baby in the cot alone uh, in the room. And so I Googled these things, and then the first thing came up was, like, sudden infant death, death syndrome. So everything was sits, everything was sits. And so that night, after being a new dad for some three days and taking care of baby on own for some eight hours, I broke down and cried. And I was like, oh my gosh, I already botched this eight hours into it. Like, and I have to take care of her for some 20 years at least. Like, what's going to happen? And so I broke down and cried. And then, uh, but thank God, you know, we had a pediatrician appointment scheduled some two days later. And so um, we just didn't sleep for the next two nights because we were so worried, right? Every time we bathed her, we were just confronted with the angry kind of spots all over her body. And we were so... Uh, worried and uh, and of course I felt immensely guilty, and so you know uh, the day rolls around when I would visit a pediatrician and so I took my baby pediatrician. So the scene is Andre has not slept for two days and so he is just positive. Uh, so hair unstyled, crusty eyes, you know probably some drool here and then just like guilty and like I'm a failure. And so I walked into the doctor's office and I presented my baby to him, put him down, and I was like, yeah, you know I messed up. I, this this heat rash. Can I give her something for it? Uh, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, can you, can you tell me what to do? And he looks at her, and within two seconds, he went, "No lah, not heat rash lah. This is just newborn skin." I was like, "Okay, pray tell. Explain to me what newborn skin is." And so it's like, "Oh, you know, in the baby, they had like different different environment. And so when they come out, the skin is adjusting." And so he went on to say this, you know. And so in the next one two days, you'll notice. Your baby's skin just peeling all over. The body will peel, the feet will peel, the face will peel. And so I looked at him. I looked at him dead in the eyes. This is after two days of sleeping. I said, doctor, if you didn't tell me my baby's skin will peel, I will freak out. I will freak out, doctor. And, and then he's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry. Then I was like, okay, you need to give me an optimum temperature to keep her at. Give me a number, give me a number. And so I forced him to give me a number. He said, okay, about 23 degrees is fine. They're okay. So I was like, the room must be 23 degrees Celsius. <laughs> nothing less and nothing more to avoid this thing. And so he looked at her for like, gosh, 30 seconds max. And we walked out, and then they gave us a bill. It was $150. <laughs> and then I said to Amy, this is the best $150 I've paid in a long time. And then as I walked out, I was like, who are these people that have been asking? Uh, they keep telling about, why nobody tell us about this newborn skin, skin face peeling thing? Nobody tell us. Anyway, $150, best money spent. <laughs> now, it brings me to this point. Now, as parents, right, what wouldn't you be willing to sacrifice for your child, right, if it meant your child's well-being? Almost anything, right, you know, like if a she-bear charged at my child, I would attempt to punch the she-bear. You know, if my child was on train track and the train was coming at her, I would jump on the train tracks. We'll do all sorts of stuff, right, for our kids. You know, smaller scale, you know, some of us will skip a meal just so our kids can eat. We will miss work so that they could heal. We will stay up at night so that they can rest. When a child's well-being is on the line, it is the parent's pleasure 
joy and duty to give up so that they can get. But as significant and important as the physical welfare of our child is, it actually pales in comparison to the immortal, irreplaceable soul that they have. The state of the soul, the state of their spiritual life. And so the question we are then led to ask in view of this is, what wouldn't you sacrifice for the sake of your child's soul, for their spiritual life? The fruit of our family discipleship or neglect thereof, I'll put it to you, may echo forever. And this is a good and sobering thought to consider, uh, even as we parent. And so my, my sermon title today is really simple. It's this, it's the altar of the home. And I'm talking about the altar of the home. Now we had uh, three amazing messages over the last three weeks, uh, and they all, in my view, revolve around the same theme. You know, we had Eugene Sell who came and spoke about Joshua 24 and dedicating your, your homes for the Lord. We had Pastor Daniel last week talking about restoring manhood and husbands after God's own heart and what it means to be a father, be a leader of the house. And Joy spoke on comparison. And, you know, of course, it, she didn't directly link it to parenthood. But, oh my gosh, comparison is such a real thing in parenting. It's crazy. You know, I remember, you know, uh, three weeks into Sage's time on earth, you know, we found out that, hey, you can actually do tummy time, like, from day one. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we are late to the game. We are falling behind. We need to, like, put it in the schedule. And so we put her through an exercise regime. I'm just kidding. We did not. But I'm so surprised and so disturbed by the amount of enrichment I can already send her it for. I can send her to Hey Guru. I can send her to Right Brain Academy. I know, I know all these things. I can send her to all these places. And many times I feel like I'm falling behind. I feel like she's losing out. Comparison is such a real thing in parenting. And so I like to just package these three sermons together. And I think these are just good, biblical, sound biblical teaching uh, that inform our parenting, inform the way we lead our home. And so this is just me adding my piece into the mix before we go uh, into our new sermon series uh, next week. And so today I have a simple outline for you. Just three questions I'd like to answer. The first is this. I talk about the altar of the home. So first off, I'd like to answer the question, what is an altar? And then the next I'd like to answer, why is it crucial for us to capture a spiritual vision for our home? And the last thing is this. Now, what are some ways that we can begin to do so? Awesome? Yeah. Do I have your attention? Yeah. Beautiful. Let us pray uh, as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for this grace of coming together. Lord, it's not just something we take lightly. We recognize that all over the world right now, that many are in turmoil. Lord, we just thank you for just the state of our nation and how it affords us this privilege of coming together. Lord, we just don't take it lightly. And God, we ask today that even as we hear from your word this morning, that it won't just be a teaching exercise, but your people would gladly receive your holy words into their hearts. As your people, we say we receive from your word this morning, O oh God. Let your word illuminate our hearts. Let your word bring life to our mortal beings. Let your word instruct us for how we ought to live. So as your people, we gladly receive from your word this morning. We ask for your spirit to be in this place, to lead us into all truth. God, we thank you that it's not mere research or eloquence that leads men into truth, but it's your Holy Spirit. So Spirit God, we ask that you'll come in power this morning, whether in this hall 
whether we're watching at home, Spirit of God, come in power. Come in power and lead us into truth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have some pictures up for you. Can I have my pictures up? These are three pictures that are really random. I know I've, I've done this with some of you before, but uh, you know, I wonder whether you recognize any of these pictures. Uh, anyone recognize where this McDonald's is? Brass Passa. All right. Uh, this one, I'll get to it. And this is, uh, anyone know where this is? This is uh, the altar area in the church I grew up in, Cornerstone. And this is um, a little tenting in a place called, uh, really, really uh, holy place. No, I'm not kidding. This is not a holy place. It's a place uh, called Club Map. Now, uh, these three areas, uh, these three places are of deep spiritual significance for me. You know, uh, when I, you know, it's not like a light pillow fish. You know, I, when I was 17, I, I got hit by a car and uh, that was... It was a long story, but that was how I came to faith. You know, I got knocked into the kingdom. And so uh, that is like a, a significant place for me, you know, where I met with God. And uh, Club Med, you know, this place uh, was when I first uh, had, you know, a real divine download about what I am to do in my life, you know, a call to ministry. And so this is a significant place for me. And the last place, you know, this is Cornerstone. Uh, I remember this, you know, altar in the front, and I would spend, you know, uh, hours upon hours just seeking God, and uh, I just love, you know, the after-service stickiness of the altar, you know, people like snort and tears on the wood, and you walk, and then it's like, tiak, tiak, you know, it's like, it's like, wow, revival just happened, you know, and so these are three significant places that hold a real spiritual significance for me. This is the place I got saved, the place I got launched, and the place that I really, really met with God. Now, we see this uh, practice, right? You know, these are significant physical spots that serve as landmarks for all that, uh, of profound spiritual moments, right? And we see this practice of remembering sacred places in Scripture as well. Now, back, when God first created the human race, we had direct access to God, right? There was no need for sacrifice, no mediation, no priest. We were just with God. It says this in Genesis that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. And that was the kind of inner mercy and connection that he had with the Lord. Now, in Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve sinned and they believed in the lie of the enemy and then they were banished from Eden, which meant that they had no longer any direct access and connection to God. They lived in God's world, but they were without God. And now here we see, right, humanity wandering around, longing for connection, longing for access, longing for the transcendent. And God, because of his great love, would come after them and would meet with them. And all through scriptures, whenever God would encounter people, they would mark it. They would mark it as a sacred place, a sacred moment. And they had a vision for recording these events and making sure people remember it with a kind of memorial, a pile of stones, renaming the place or building an altar. And this is where we get a theology of altars. It's a place of remembrance. It's a place, marking a place as a sacred place because a sacred moment happened there. Scholars call this memorializing theophany. Memorializing theophany. Theophany meaning, theo meaning God, and phony meaning like experience, right? It's to say that though this place, for me it's Brass Plaza, McDonald's, Club Med, and the wooden floors and cornerstone, though this place may look normal and ordinary, Something sacred and profound happened here. God met with me here. Now, we use the word altar frequently around here. We talked about this fun portion of the church being the altar. When we give a call, we call it an 
altar call, right? You know, you come to the altar to have your life altered. Uh-huh. Nothing like cheesy things. But we use language like that, right? You know, like rebuilding the altars. But what does it actually mean, right? If I were to throw out the word altar, it would conjure all sorts of images in your mind. Now, while our image and idea of an altar may differ, one thing that is without question is this, that the altar played a central role all through the Old Testament. I'll argue in the New Testament as well. Altars were built by many of God's people. The first altars were made by individuals with Noah's being the first in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And following him, nearly every prominent person after him in the Old Testament made an altar at some point. Here's a list of examples. Boom, I've done my homework. Now, we mentioned earlier that one of the primary purposes of the altar was to memorialize or commemorate the significant moment with God, right? It was to serve as a marker of God's deliverance for the generations. Like their descendants will look back on the altar and know God moved in my parents, in my grandparents' generation. And you can certainly do the same today. Another key purpose of the altar was that it was a place of atoning sacrifices. Right? We spoke of how Adam and Eve, because of the sin, they no longer had direct access to God's presence. And as a result, the people in the Old Covenant could not come directly to God's presence. And because of their sin, they needed sacrifice for the atonement, for the cleansing of their sin in order that they may enter into the presence of God. And they did so on the altar. Now, this was, that was a huge part that altars played first you know, in the tabernacle, then in the temple. But the altar was also uh, a place where they offered a sacrifice of praise, you know, where they were rejoicing for something that God did. They would lay a sacrifice on the altar as a means of gratitude, a sacrifice of praise. And so the altar served three purposes. It was a place of memorializing theophany. It was a place of gratitude, of offering praise. It was a place of atonement. That is the altar. Now to sum up all that I've just said, the presence of God is drawn to altars. Read this in the Bible. Presence of God is drawn to altars, and the people of God are called to build and tend to altars. I'll say that again. Presence of God is drawn to altars, and the people of God are called to build and tend to altars. The altar is where God and men meet. It's a place of remembrance, a place of presence, a place of sacrifice, a place of meeting, a place of communion. Now, what does all of this have to do with our homes? I'm glad you asked, because this is the next part of my notes. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 says this. As you, all of us, come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Another text, Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly profess His name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That is the word of the Lord. And so we read, in the Old Testament, a special class of people, priests, would go into the temple and offer sacrifices to God on a physical altar. 
But in the New Testament, from what we've just read, you are the priest and your heart is the temple, the altar. You do not need an intermediary anymore to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. You are allowed, you have access to God's presence once again because of the atoning work of Calvary. Now we have the outrageous privilege, ladies and gentlemen, to make our hearts, our lives, even our homes and families, altars for the presence of God. No longer do we need a physical altar. Our hearts, our lives, our vocation, our homes, our families can be altars unto God for His presence and glory. Now, I want to make the case today that the altar of the home is integral to sparking, sustaining, and spreading revival in our day. I fully believe so. As we see unprecedented breakdowns in marriage, both outside and also sadly in the church, the attempt to redefine the very construct of family and the widespread, of decline, the widespread decline of faith among millennials and Gen Z, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up a standard against it. And I believe God is raising the church to be a beacon of hope and life, particularly in the way we do family. So we need to recapture a vision for God's presence in our homes, don't we? His glory and power to not just be in our meetings, but in our homes. Amen. Amen. You know, I... No, I believe really, you know, the next wave of revival, you know, I've, I've been feeling this for a long time, will be sparked off in homes. You know, I, I, I think of what Eugene said, there's no co- coincidence for what has happened in the last year, where many of us have been forced to discover spirituality in the context of our homes. And I can't help but see a pattern emerging here. And I fully believe that the next wave of God's move will be sparked off in homes. And I believe there's going to be a spiritual awakening in families where husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons and daughters will come to faith, not because of great meetings, but because of the faithful presence and witness of their family members. I fully believe so. And I believe that there's going to be an unprecedented window of opportunity for reconciliation that will spark off renewal, a spiritual renewal in our land. And I believe that wholeheartedly. You know, I think of this uh, quote by John Wesley. He said this once in his life. I've learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. Just think about that. What gravity you know, and what, what another privilege. You know, and so the question I've been asking myself is this. You know, what if my girl and what if your children are the next movers and shakers for God's kingdom? What if they are? What if God has destined them and called them to serve him with such purpose, how would it change the way you led your family? And if you knew that, how would it change the way you interacted with your child? Will you be intentional in pouring into your child, not just earthly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom, so that they may serve the purposes of God? Howard Hendricks, a professor and speaker for Promise Keepers, once said, a Christian home is more than a house full of Christian people. And then he said this, many Christians today are praying for revival in the church, but there will never be revival in the church unless there is a revival in the home. Strong words. Oliver Haywood said this, and this is directed to someone like me. I know not how a minister can employ his time studies and pen better next to the conviction and conversion of particular souls than impressing upon householders a care of the souls under their charge. 
I know not of more important purpose. I have another quote. Uh, this is Josephus. And so Josephus was, you know, an early, he was an historian in the time of the early church. And so if you wanted to know what the early church thought about things, you would read Josephus. And this is what Josephus said. Our ground is good and we work it to the utmost, but our chief ambition is for the education of our children. We take most pains of all with the instruction of children and esteem the observation of the laws and the piety corresponding with them. The most important affair of our whole life. And I wonder whether we consider our parenting what we do at home in the same light. The most important affair of our whole life. That it is not just privilege, but there is great weight in what we do as parents. Now, I'd like to take our rest, the rest of our time with taking us through Deuteronomy 6. Now, this is a lengthy passage of scripture, and I won't uh, you know, read it at one go, but we'll, we'll take some time to work through the text because I believe that Deuteronomy 6 directly speaks into this vision of building the altar of the home. Right? And so, you know, I've broken the chapter down into two portions or two instructions for the people of God, and that is this. It is to break off and to build up in order to walk into this vision of building or setting our homes as an altar unto God, we need to first break off and then we need to build up. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, first off, to break off. Let's read a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the first thing we read here is that we need to break off spiritual complacency. In our homes, we need to break off spiritual complacency. From the text, we read this, that physical prosperity can numb you to the point of spiritual apathy. Physical prosperity has the potential to numb you into spiritual apathy. Now, do you remember when you were younger, fresh out of university and applying for a job? You were nervous, anxious, and insecure, and you pray, God, God, I need help to get this job. God, God, I need help. Hi, baby. God, God, I need your wisdom. I need favor. I need open doors in order to get this job. And when you get the job, you go, hallelujah, God be praised, only He is able to do it. And you know that you didn't have the connections, nor the means, nor the skills or the qualifications to get it, but you did so anyway. And you praise God. And over time, as you build a life for yourself and experience a joy that comes with the increase, you start to move from desperation to Sunday brunch. You start to move from a place of utter dependency into a kind of complacency and apathy. And we're not careful our lack of desperation can often turn into a kind of entitlement. And Moses is warning them against that in this text. And we need to keep that humility, hunger, gratitude, and desperation for God alive, not just in our own lives, but from generation to generation. We cannot let blessings rob us of spiritual hunger. Now, this principle is also true in the natural. Because statistics show that 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation. And a staggering 90% lose their wealth by the third generation. 
Now, why is that? Because often the behaviors that produce the wealth aren't handed down generation upon generation. They aren't imparted to the next. Stuff like hard work, resilience, strategy, they are not handed down from the next, unto the next generation. Just the wealth. And so the wealth declines and future generations are often left with nothing. This principle we can also see with the children of Israel. Now, how many of you are familiar with this verse that I'm about to put up? Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. How many of you have it in your homes? Just me? You know, I have it in my homes. It's one of the first gifts I got. Uh, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, many of us have it in our homes, but not many of us are aware of its context. Here, Joshua, in this text, is nearing the end of his life, right? So he's old, he is worn, and he has matured in God. And he's defeated many armies, seen many miracles, and led the children of Israel to the promised land. Now, this verse is a closing statement in a charge he has given to the children of Israel. In chapter 24, he narrates the entire story of God's deliverance of the people of Israel, his power, his wonder, his glory. And then he follows up with this. He says, you now have to choose who to serve. In light of all of this, in light of all that's God done, choose who to serve. And then he says this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when you read it alone, it feels soft. But when you read it in its context, it is firm, it is resolute, it's a claim he's making. In light of all things, in light of all the options, in light of all the pagan idolatry you might gravitate towards, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is a stake in the ground he's planting. Now, following Joshua, we, we know that the next book of the Bible is Judges. Now, I want to take you literally one page down the Bible to Judges chapter 2 and read probably one of the most tragic passages in the Bible. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Now, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at, I can't pronounce that, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, it says this, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It's one of the most tragic passages in all of the Bible. And so we read that after Joshua's death, others of his generation lived, lived on for a while, but then they too died out. So while they lived, the people of Israel served faithfully because the memory of God's greatness was still fresh, it was still preserved, and so they followed God faithfully. But, the verse, but in verse 10 it says this, that after the death of Joshua and those who had seen God's mighty acts, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. Now what a tragic story. Now when you see this, you know, really is scripture, right? This is Joshua 24. This is Judges 2. All of that, that spiritual decline that we just read, happened literally in one page. I know there's chronological distance between Joshua and Judges, but look at this. Look at how quick it happens. Look at how fast it creeps up. 
And if we do not fight for the spiritual lives, for, for, the, 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 for the reality of God in the next generation, this is what would very well happen to the next generation as well. Now, what happened in between? History tells us that the people of God, when they moved in the promised land, they settled. They amassed possessions. No longer did they need manna from heaven, quail in the evening. No longer were they camped around God's presence. They now moved into their own lands and lived in their own homes. And what we can assume is this. The homes, when the people moved into the homes, they did not continue in the ways of Joshua and the elders. They moved from utter dependency to God to spiritual apathy and complacency. And the result of this ignorance is not just apathy. It's utter spiritual decline. It is rebellion against God. In verse 11 of Judges 2, we read this, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They arose the Lord's anger. And so I'd like to suggest to you this morning, a spiritual apathy in our homes, not handing down an inheritance of passion, comes at so great a cost. And the truth is there is an urgency that we need to recapture here. In the Barna report, it showed that in recent times, 64% of people raised in faith will leave their faith in their 20s. 64% of people raised in faith will leave their faith in their 20s. Imagine if I took 100 of our gosh kids right now and I put them up on stage. And I said, two-thirds of you stand here, one-third of you stand here. And I looked at the two-thirds and said, at some point in your 20s, you will basically become atheists. How many of you will be okay with that? None of you. None of you will be okay with that. But that's very well possible when the people of God lack a vision for spiritual legacy. Another interesting report I'd like to bring up. You know, in the Barna report, on the state of spirituality in Gen Z, youth pastors were polled on the challenges they faced pastoring Gen Z. I'd like you to hear this. Let, the, let this you know, really, really imprint something in your heart. The most common struggle that youth pastors report by far in their ministry to Gen Zs is this. Parents not prioritizing Gen Z's spiritual growth. That's the most common struggle that youth pastors face in their ministry today. I would like to submit to you this, that an hour or two of Sunday school or youth ministry a week will not capture the hearts of the next generation. There must be something more. There must be something more. Thank you, youth pastor. I know, I know. I put it in there just for you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Future, once said this, let no Christian parents fall into the delusion that the Sunday school is intended to ease them of their personal duties. The first and most natural condition of things is for Christian parents to train up their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's true. The next thing we've got to break off as we position our homes to be an altar for God is this. We need to break off worldliness, people. We need to break off worldliness. Verse 13. 
of Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Now, this is a warning from Moses. He's saying this, when you go into the promised land, you will be tempted to join in the idolatry and the debauchery of other cultures. But he's saying, don't do that. Stay loyal to God. Now, we talk much about cultural relevance in the church today, but we talk little about cultural, cultural resilience. We talk a lot about being relevant to culture, but we don't talk about how, as the people, we need to be resilient in the face of popular culture. James 4 says this, that to be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. Do we, do we consider this? To be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. We need to fend off worldliness and exemplify this in our homes. At the end of the day, it comes back to this. What is our vision of the good life? Of a good life? Are the markers of our success worldly or are they eternal? And when we parent and set goals for our home and children, do we set purely goals of worldly success or hearts set in seeing them succeed in the things of God? Are we just satisfied with moralism in our children or are we after them growing in spiritual affection for God and for the things of God? Are we after them just getting good grades or do we desire to see them grow in the fruit of the Spirit? What are our markers of success when it comes to our parenting? Because if we don't, before we know it, our longings and affections will be rooted in the spirit of the age and it gradually leads us away from God and His purposes. And so the question is this, are there things that has gotten into your life, to your home, your parenting, that you know the wider culture tolerates, but God does not? Now these small compromises, when it came into the lives of the children of Israel, led to spiritual ruin and disaster. It did. Now, we need to come to terms with this reality that to raise our children as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ, would mean that they are favored by God, but utterly repulsive to the majority of culture. It is true. Because as followers of Christ, we are not promised a smooth, easy life. What we're promised is rejection, persecution, opposition. And to raise your child in the way of the Lord, yes, they'll be favored by God, but they will be utterly repulsive to the majority of culture. And we know where culture is heading, don't we? The more secular society becomes, the more privatized our faith will be demanded to be. But, folks, it isn't just about breaking off stuff, but it's also about building up. I'm landing a plane shortly. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, for your soul, for all your strength. The first thing we need to do as we endeavor to build an altar for God in our homes is this. We need to model. First thing is modeling. Observing your daily, ordinary example of life with God, following Christ, I'll put it to you, is one of the most significantly, it's one of the most significant spiritual formation experience that you can give to your child. It's so significant. Some of your best lessons as a parent are going to be habitually gleaned 
instead of ex- instead of explicitly explained. I'll say that again. Some of your best lessons that you give to your child will be habitually gleaned instead of explicitly explained. Now, I read a lot of biographies of stories of men of God, and the common theme among them, who were among those who were uh, impacted by their parents, is that they would observe, they would watch the devotion lives of their parents growing up. John Wesley would talk about how his mom, Susanna Wesley, would have an apron over her head, praying to God as her ten children were running around her, playing or studying. And he saw that, and that was one of the most significant memories he had as a child, and it seared in him a deep desire to have that kind of devotion. Modeling. The next thing is this instruction. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Now in Matthew 22, when someone asked Jesus, what is the most important command in the entire Old Testament? He did not hesitate. He cited Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus calls it the great and first commandment. It's the most preeminent command in the Bible. Now every Jew then knew what comes next. Verse 6 comes next. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts impress them on your children. And so we can gather here that discipleship by design is a parental responsibility. It's a parental responsibility, not something to be outsourced. We have the responsibility of first being immersed in God's words and ways. And as we are, we then impress and impart them to our children. This is how to live in accordance to God and His ways. The next thing is this, I have a few more that that just, you know, to to go through. And the next thing is this, rituals, rituals. The next verse says this, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Now, don't get freaked out by the word rituals. It simply means this, habit, regular observances or practices. Now, rituals are powerful. They help us to see what we otherwise might forget to look for. And the same is true at home. Daily rituals and family traditions serve to show us and our children who we are and what matters to us. Rituals can be going to church together on Sunday, saying grace, prayer, bedtime, weekly Bible study. It is to put in place some kind of practice that orients your family toward God, that reflects your value for God and His kingdom. Rituals. And so it brings to mind this question, what are some family rituals, practices, and traditions that you have that communicates your value for God, that reorients the direction of family unto God and His purposes. What are some of these rituals? The next thing is this, is to make visible, making visible. Verse 9 says this, write them on the door frames, them meaning the commandments, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now what was important then was for the children of Israel to continually have the commandments of God before them, not just in their mind, but visibly before them, to serve as anchors, as reminders. Now, I recently brought, bought a print of the Lord's Prayer that I have up in my kitchen. And now, because the print is up there and it's pretty sizable, every morning I find myself praying the Lord's Prayer. On the evening, as I go to bed, I would stand before the Lord's Prayer and pray the Lord's Prayer before I go to bed. And it served as a kind of anchor for my spiritual life. And as I go, you know, I pray the Lord's Prayer, and it's a great prayer. You know, Jesus taught it. But also, you know, it's, it's something that I've grown to measure my life with. You know, I looked at the verse and go like, have I done this? You know, have I forgiven? Have I sought the God in this kingdom? Now, having these visual cues 
can be a really, really powerful thing in your homes. I know many of you have fantastic aesthetic. And the last thing you want is like the holiness unto the Lord, like plaque on top of your TV console. But can I just advocate for the value of these things so that they actually do serve a spiritual purpose? When you make plain these things, and as your kids grow up in the house, they'll be asking questions. What is this verse? Why do we have this thing? And you can point to these uh, objects, these posters, these, this, whatever you have here, and go, this is what God has been teaching me through this verse. This is how it's significant for me. And you can draw your child into your spiritual life, into your spiritual legacy. Make visible. It's not just about posters, folks. Don't go out and buy posters. But it's just making visible, right, your value, your, your things you value. If you value hospitality, make it visible. Have an extra seat at the table. If you value making room in home, perhaps the way, you know, if you have the means to do so, to always have a spare room. You know, it's, it's just a way of making visible what you value. The last thing is, and it is the most important, it's retelling. Retelling. Verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6 says this, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we're slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And it goes on. He narrates the entire story of Israel's deliverance. Now, I have a picture up here of the Bonnie Bray house. It was the place that sparked off the fires of the Azusa Street revival that was ignited almost 115 years ago. Now, I had the privilege of visiting the Bronnie Bray house, and I met uh, the caretaker who was there, who was an elderly uh, lady. And, you know, we, she showed us around the house, and uh, as we were concluding the tour, she took time to just tell stories after stories of the revival. And she herself had met someone who was actually there at the revival and heard these stories from someone who had a first-hand account and she was just passing on the stories to the next. And what happened in the moment was utterly profound. As she recounted these stories of God's power, glory and presence that descended upon that home, that house in a very real way. The story goes that the, the fire department had been called to the house because the house looked like it was actually physically on fire. That's how much, you know, God's glory and presence upon that meeting. And she was just sharing this story, and she was doing so. I felt chills down my, down the, down my spine, and even as I'm thinking about today, you know, I'm just filled with a sense of awe, reverence, and wonder. Now, do you have stories like that to pass on to your children? The same, reported, the same report that I cited from Barna earlier states this, that most Gen Zs today are simply not interested in faith. They just find it unappealing and boring. Now, we need to cast a compelling vision of who God is. It starts off with Deuteronomy 6. It says, the Lord is one. He is glorious, mighty, and powerful. He delivered us out of bondage. The Lord is one. Now, what comes to mind when you consider God? Is He mighty, powerful, and glorious? Because, folks, today we have done the impossible. We have made Jesus the most compelling figure in all of human history, the God-man, the eternal logos, the one who cleansed the lepers, the one who raised the dead, the one who healed the sick, the one who has the most compelling teach teachings. We have made this man who defied categories and confronted injustice. We have made him boring and uninteresting. What a tragedy to pass on. Do we have stories of God's might? 
power and glory in our lives that can pass on to our children. And so what is our role? Our role is simply this, to live a life pursuing God, His kingdom, to step out in faith, in love, in service toward others, to be found in the thick of God's activity, His glory, His presence, His power, so that we can pass on stories to our children as a form of spiritual inheritance and say to them, God is real and He is good. He has done this in my life. You know, it was said that Dear Moody, the famed evangelist, when he would host a tent meeting, when the Spirit of God came upon the meeting, he would stop the entire meeting and sit and call for his assistant to run to the Sunday school and to bring all the kids into the tent. Because it was crucial that they experience what the adults were experiencing. When God was moving, it was crucial for the kids to have the same experience. Now, what if the answer to the rising tide of cynicism, the decline of faith among the young, it's not better programs, structure, or content, but exposure to God's glory, presence, and power? And what if our homes are not just a place of nurture, love, and care, but a place of encounter where our kids meet with God's power? To close off, let me just share a final story as we close off. A 63-year-old woman sits in a modest chair in the middle of the room. In front of her is a small table. The opposite side of the table is an empty chair. A man walks to the center of the room and sits in the empty chair. Now he's visibly nervous and fidgets with his hands. The woman lifts her head, opens her eye, and makes eye contact with the young men. They hold each other's gaze, and after four minutes, the man's body has become still, and tears begin to flow down his face. The woman looks back, and tears flow down from her face as well. The man offers the slightest of smiles at this recognition of his humanity, and then he gets up and leaves. Something seems to have changed in him. The woman bows her head again. Not a word has been spoken. Then a middle-aged woman enters the room and takes the vacant seat. From March 11 to May 31, 2010, controversial performance artist Marina Abramovic repeated this ritual with 1,541 people over a period of 736 hours. Now, this performance was controversial, was held at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and was entitled, The Artist is Present. The Artist is Present. Abramovic's intention was to host a living protest against the lack of connection in a society and offer a place for profound human contact and presence. Now many you know, following being part of the experience would say, would declare it a transcendent experience. Can you imagine that you know, in a world that is so connected, that is so distracted, really, that simply sitting with another person, staring eye to eye, can be described as a transcendent experience. And they felt that the experience brought restoration and hope to their soul. And some declared that for the first time in their lives, they felt like their true humanity was seen. This experiment revealed in the human heart a primal longing for presence, a primal longing for the gift of presence. Now today, 31-year-old man sits on a playmat. Across from him lies his five-month daughter on a tummy. Now from now until she is married and moves out the house, I'm thinking 40. 
he gets to pour into our life the word of God, the lessons he's learned, spiritual wisdom. He gets to pour into our life and see her blossom and flourish to someone who is strong and secure. He gets to give her the gift of presence. Now, maybe you like, are like me today. You can't promise to be a perfect, proficient, or prodigious father. But I can definitely endeavor to be an intentionally present one. Committed to building an altar that leaves a spiritual legacy of blessing for my child. And, and to share, to impart stories of God's goodness and faithfulness for my children. So that they too may stand in time to come. The last verse, let's read Psalm 78 as we close. Says this in God's word. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have taught us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. Because we have a responsibility, folks, to live lives of faith, to experience the wonder, the awe, the glory, the power of God so that we may hand something down to the next generation. Amen? Amen. Can we stand? Yeah, i just share a, a quote that I didn't get to that I just so love. It's from Ronald Roheiser, one of my favorite Catholic writers. He says this, To be a parent is to have to permanently open your heart, life, and plans so as to create a unique space in them for someone else, your child. To be a mother or father is to let your dreams and agenda be forever altered. To see your own child is to feel what God must feel when God looks at us. Parenting, in the end, is the most natural path to holiness and maturity, which often feels like a compulsory commitment takes us where we would rather not go. What a vision. That our parenting is not just about raising children so that they will succeed in society. But in this act, in giving our lives to parents, we are building God's kingdom. We are building God's kingdom so that it will stand from generation to generation. That's the gift. That's the call. That's the privilege of parenting. And I know, you know, I'm so unqualified to even talk about this Five months on only. Some of you have been doing it for years. And so, wow, painful, painful. But I have been so possessed by this vision as I read through text and I see it decline. The possibility of decline from one generation to the next. And I've been possessed with this deep desire. I, I don't want that for the next generation. I don't want that for my child. And I know you too do not wish for that to be the case with your own children. You know, in Judges chapter 6, there's this story about Gideon who uh, heard from God and God spoke to him and said, hey, go take your father's bowl and go sacrifice on this altar that I'm calling you to build. In Judges 6, following Judges 2. Now, you must understand that in a patriarchal society, how outrageous it would be for you to take your father's property and offer your allegiance to something that is different from the house you grew up in. But Gideon did that. And we all know that Gideon brought redemption and reformation to the entire nation. And it all traced back to this single moment of obedience where he broke off 
from the sins of old, from the, the, the ungodly inheritance he inherited. And he built an altar unto the, unto the Lord. And it forever changed, not just the trajectory of his family lineage, but it changed the destiny of the nation. I'd like to say to you today that perhaps you grew up in a home that wasn't godly. You grew up in a home and you've inherited stuff that you know has done damage and detriment to your soul. I'd like to speak this over you, the promise of God, that that does not have to be the case. That in God, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, generational sins, generational wounding and baggages can be broken off. You can break that off and you can build up today a godly inheritance, a godly legacy for your children to inherit and walk in the ways of God all the days of their life. That is possible in Christ. And so let's just take a moment in reflection of all that we've just heard. With eyes closed. And just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What are some stuff I've inherited that I need to break off? What are some stuff in my home, in my parenting, in the way I interact with my children that I need to break off today? And just allow for the Spirit to surface these things. Spirit of God, we ask that you lead us into truth in this moment. Lead us to break off things that are antithetical to your way. Lead us to break off things that so contradict your way, your kingdom, your plans for our lives. As He surfaces these things, just make a commitment in your own way, be it with a prayer or with a posture of your body. Say, God, I want to break off these things today. Spirit, we know you are able to do this. Bring us into deliverance. Shatara We speak this, that generational patterns, dysfunctional generational patterns, no longer have to live on. In Christ, we are set free. In Christ, we are made whole. And so we put a stake in the ground this day, as Joshua did. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We turn away from the idols of all. We turn away from dysfunction and we set our eyes on God and we say, God, make our homes an altar. Give us the grace to do so. Give us the grace to build up place for your presence, for your glory and power. We thank you for this moment. Mark it. Mark it. Let this be a trajectory shifting day. From this day onwards, may our families take a step closer, take a step forward into the destiny you have called us to live up. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's go back into the song together.